Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please, help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in $5 per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcasting network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I am coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a Cash App profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, so today we are going to go ahead and wrap up our deep dive of the Hamiltonian system, and we're going to be reading from Hamilton's magnum opus as the Secretary of the Treasury, which was his third major report to Congress, which was officially titled The Report on the Subject of Manufacturers, which he delivered to the Speaker of the House of Representatives on December 5th, 1791. And the fallout from this report would spark the real rise of the first American party system as James Madison and Thomas Jefferson would set up the Democratic Republicans as a truly oppositional force to the high Federalists, who were spearheaded by Alexander Hamilton and a cabal of northern politicians, including Robert Morris, Timothy Pickering, and Theodore Sedgwick, among others. Now, before we dig in, just to summarize the first two major planks of the Hamiltonian system. So recall from the first report on public credit... Hamilton called for a permanent and funded national debt that could be used to inflate the money supply and tie the interest of the elites in with the fate of a strong central government. To this, Madison would say, quote, I go on the principle that a public debt is a public curse and in a Republican government, a greater curse than any other, end quote. In his second report on public credit, Hamilton made a call for a national bank that he knew was unconstitutional since the power to incorporate a bank had been explicitly denied to the new general government during the Philadelphia Convention. And remember, James Madison is the one who proposed giving them that power, but it was explicitly shot down. Now, Thomas Jefferson railed against this report by informing George Washington that he considered the Tenth Amendment as the bedrock of the new Constitution and that a federally chartered corporation would end up becoming paramount to the laws of the sovereign states themselves. And Jefferson also expressed his apprehension beautifully by pointing out that to allow Congress one step more than the grants in the Constitution would give them, in fact, a boundless field of power. And now today, the final plank of Hamilton's system is going to be protective tariffs for pet industries and manufacturers through a mixed use of bounties and targeted tariffs. And now that we have the recap and the primer taken care of, let's just go ahead and jump right into the report itself. So again, this is delivered on December 5th, 1791, and Hamilton says, The Secretary of the Treasury, in obedience to the order of the House of Representatives of the 15th day of January, 1790, has applied his attention at as early a period as his other duties would permit to the subject of manufacturers, and particularly to the means of promoting such as will tend to render the United States independent of foreign nations for military and other essential supplies. And he there respectfully submits the following report. The expediency of encouraging manufacturers in the United States, which was not long since deemed very questionable, appears at this time to be pretty generally admitted. The embarrassments which have obstructed the progress of our external trade have led to serious reflections on the necessity of enlarging the sphere of our domestic commerce. The restrictive regulations which in foreign markets abridge the vent of the increasing surplus of our agricultural produce serve to beget an earnest desire that a more extensive demand for that surplus may be created at home. 
And the complete success, which has rewarded manufacturing enterprise and some valuable branches, conspiring with the promising symptoms, which attend some less mature essays and others, justify a hope that the obstacles to the growth of this species of industry are less formidable than they were apprehended to be, and that it is not difficult to find in its further extension a full indemnification for any external disadvantages which are or may be experienced as well as an accession of resources favorable to national independence and safety. There still are, nevertheless, respectable patrons of opinions unfriendly to the encouragement of manufacturers. The following are substantially the arguments by which these opinions are defended. In every country, say those who entertain them, agriculture is the most beneficial and productive object of human history. This position generally, if not universally true, applies with peculiar emphasis to the United States on account of their immense tracts of fertile territory, uninhabited and unimproved. Nothing can afford so advantageous an employment for capital and labor as the conversion of this extensive wilderness into cultivated farms. Nothing equally with this can contribute to the population, strength, and real riches of the country. To endeavor by the extraordinary patronage of government to accelerate the growth of manufactures is in fact to endeavor by force and art to transfer the natural current of industry from a more to a less beneficial channel. Whatever has such a tendency must necessarily be unwise. Indeed, it can hardly ever be wise in a government to attempt to give a direction to the industry of its citizens. This, under the quick-sighted guidance of private interest, will, if left to itself, infallibly find its own way to the most profitable employment. And tis by such employment that the public prosperity will be most effectually promoted. To leave industry to itself, therefore, is in almost every case the soundest as well as the simplest policy. Now, remember, this is Hamilton summarizing the arguments of his opponents. Hamilton is not coming out in favor of free trade and real free market capitalism here. And he goes on to say, If contrary to the natural course of things, an unseasonable and premature spring can be given to certain fabrics by heavy duties, prohibitions, bounties, or by other forced expedients, this will only be to sacrifice the interest of the community to those of particular classes. Besides the misdirection of labor, a virtual monopoly will be given to the persons employed on such fabrics, and an enhancement of price, the inevitable consequence of every monopoly, must be defrayed at the expense of the other parts of the society. It is far preferable that those persons should be engaged in the cultivation of the earth, and that we should procure in exchange for its productions the commodities with which foreigners are able to supply us in greater perfection and upon better terms. So again, still summarizing the arguments against his system here but think about what he's saying think about the critique there you have the jeffersonians and you have the more agrarian portion of the population saying look liberty springs forth from land we need people tied to the land we need farmers we don't need to get trapped in this industrial system where the government's getting in cahoots with certain classes and setting them up to dominate their fellow man that that is exactly what this argument is saying So keep that in mind as we work through the rest of this, and especially when we see how Hamilton responds to some of these criticisms, just keep this in mind. This is what his opposition was saying. Liberty springs up from property. Without property, nobody's free. You're a wage slave, or in worst case scenario, at this point in time, you are in fact a slave. So just again, keep this in mind as we work our way through the report here. But one of the first things Hamilton says, he tries to be conciliatory, so he says, it ought readily to be conceded that the cultivation of the earth has intrinsically a strong claim to preeminence over every other kind of industry, but that it has a title to anything like an exclusive predilection in any country ought to be admitted with great caution. That it is even more productive than every other branch of industry requires more evidence than has yet been given in support of the position. That its real interests, precious and important as without the help of exaggeration they truly are, will be advanced rather than injured by the due encouragement of manufacturers, may, it is believed, be satisfactorily demonstrated. And it is also believed that the expediency of such encouragement in a general view may be shown to be recommended by the most cogent and persuasive motives of national policy. And notice how many times, just here in the first three or four pages of this thing, Hamilton is saying... This is expedient. He's not saying it's constitutional. He's saying it's expedient. It is expedient that we should give government aid to these manufacturers so we can make ourselves more independent of Great Britain, more independent of France, more independent of Spain, so on and so forth. Basically, all the, all the big European powers of, the, of that day. 
So Hamilton does have a point there. Do you want to be reliant on Great Britain for iron products, let's say, if you're going to have to fight a war with Great Britain? Obviously, the answer to that is no. But at the same time, Great Britain was also somewhat reliant on you for food. So you have some sort of mutual interest there. So Hamilton has some points, but again, he's relying on a very shaky position, a very shaky foundation by saying all of this stuff is expedient. Again, notice he has not said anything about the constitutionality. Now he will later on, but that's because he's going to argue for an abuse of the general welfare clause, but we'll get to that part here in a second. But let's now go ahead and move into what he actually says in trying to counteract this. So I'm going to summarize this report a lot more than the other ones because this one is a, a lot longer so just know that hamilton kind of goes into an economic history and he talks about the advantages of a division of labor he talks about the advantages of an industrialized society uh, when it comes to making trinkets and mass producing goods so he understands i mean he's obviously read as adam smith here he understands the benefits of mass production and the division of labor he he understands all the economic portions of that his argument really comes down to we need the government to foster these things because if we just leave them to truly develop in a free market system, well, that's going to take too long and that is not expedient, whereas giving them government largesse is. And Hamilton clearly also understood the effects of unemployment, and he's actually probably one of the first American politicians to talk about the benefits of an industrial system being able to keep people more actively engaged. So one of the arguments he makes here is titled, As to the additional employment of classes of the community not ordinarily engaged in the particular business. So he has this broken down in several different sections where he addresses everything point by point and offers counterpoint by counterpoint. So in this one, he says, This is not among the least valuable of the means by which manufacturing institutions contribute to augment the general stock of industry and production. In places where those institutions prevail, besides the persons regularly engaged in them, they afford occasional and extra employment to industrious individuals and families who are willing to devote the leisure resulting from the intermissions of their ordinary pursuits to collateral labors as a resource of multiplying their acquisitions or enjoyments. The husbandman himself experiences a new source of profit and support from the increased industry of his wife and daughters, invited and stimulated by the demands of the neighboring manufactories. Now, think about what Hamilton's saying there. In the South at this time, you had an ideal where the women folk would not really have to work, and kids generally were not required to work. Even on the slave side, um, kids were subjected, at least male children, were kind of subjected to a slow break-in process. If you ever read the book Roll, Jordan, Roll, uh, Eugene Genovese talks about this. They were not really subjected to hard labor until about age 12 or 13. But here Hamilton is basically going to extol the virtues of child labor. So he goes on to say, Besides this advantage of occasional employment to classes having different occupations, there is another of a nature allied to it of a similar tendency. This is the employment of persons who would otherwise be idle, and in many cases a burden on the community. So think about, again, think about what he's saying. If you have a widow woman, or if you have some orphan children who are burdens on the community, well, by George, put their asses to work. So he goes on to say, either from the bypass of temper, habit, infirmity, or body, or some other cause, indisposing or disqualifying them for the tools of the country. It is worthy of a particular remark that in general, women and children are rendered more useful and the latter more early useful by manufacturing establishments than they would otherwise be. Of the number of persons employed in the cotton manufactories of Great Britain, it is computed that four-sevenths nearly are women and children, of whom the greatest proportion are children, and many of them of a very tender age. And thus it appears to be one of the attributes of manufacturers, and of one of no small consequence to give occasion to the exertion of a greater quantity of industry, even by the same number of persons where they happen to prevail, than would exist if there were no such establishments. And so this is concerning to me you had again you had southerners at this point who were highly critical of the european or british industrial system of uh, just abusing kids taking them in using them abusing them spitting them back out and you had a high amount of homelessness a high amount of poverty and later on you would have the tenement housing in the in the states and everything else but hamilton here is saying look this is a good thing you take these women and children who otherwise are useless hand them over to a shop owner and make them work so he's basically advocating for sweatshops, in my opinion. Now, I'll admit I'm not giving him a very 
charitable interpretation here, but Hamilton is extolling the virtues of child labor here, and that, that would be problematic because the South saw that in a much, much different light. They said, look, let kids be kids. Basically, this was the Southern position. Now, kids were expected to work on the farms in the South. Nobody's going to deny that. However, when you come to the thought of subjecting them to very brutal industrial conditions where people died just about every day or at least every week, then you had some pushback against that from the South. You also had pushback from that in certain northern areas. But Hamilton, again, is saying this is a good thing because you're not going to have them be a burden to society anymore. And then the next point that he makes that I'm going to cover is actually talking about the benefits of immigration or as to the promoting of immigration from foreign countries is what he officially titled this section. So it says, Men reluctantly quit one course of occupation and livelihood for another unless invited to it by very apparent and proximate advantages. Many who would go from one country to another if they had a prospect of continuing with more benefits the Collins to which they have been educated will often not be tempted to change their situation by the hope of doing better in some other way. Manufacturers who, listening to the powerful invitations of a better price for their fabrics or their labor, of greater cheapness of provisions and raw materials, of an exemption from the chief part of the taxes, burdens, and restraints which they endure in the old world, of greater personal independence and consequence under the operation of a more equal government, and of what is far more precious than mere religious toleration— a perfect equality of religious privileges, would probably flock from Europe to the United States to pursue their own trades or professions if they were once made sensible of the advantages they would enjoy and were inspired with an assurance of encouragement and employment will with difficulty be induced to transplant themselves with a view to becoming cultivators of land. And so let's think about what Hamilton's saying here. He's saying, look, if we give them a reason to come, then they'll be here. So Hamilton's already conceiving of like specialized economic development zones, all this kind of stuff. Hamilton's already envisioning that. So Hamilton, on one hand, was a visionary, but he is envisioning a very imperialistic U.S. that basically is going to seek to exploit emerging markets. That That's Hamilton's whole thing. He's a firm, firm believer in an imperial model. And he goes on to say then, if it be true then that it is in the interest of the United States to open every possible immigration from abroad... It affords a weighty argument for the encouragement of manufacturers, which for the reasons just assigned will have the strongest tendency to multiply the inducements to it. Here is perceived an important resource, not only for extending the population and with it the useful and productive labor of the country, but likewise for the prosecution of manufacturers without deducting from the number of hands which might otherwise be drawn to tillage, and even for the indemnification of agriculture for such as might happen to be diverted from it. And so here Hamilton's saying, look, okay, fine. For our native-born citizens, if y'all want to go work the land, by all means, go work the land. We'll just import this labor, and we don't need you. That That is essentially what Hamilton's saying here. Now, he's cloaking it in very rosy language. He's saying, well, look, we can do this to keep from drawing hands off of the land. But in reality, what he wants to do is just import a ton of cheap labor for American manufacturers. That is what he's calling for here. He wants unrestricted European migration to the United States. And then he thinks that will be a boon to manufacturers because they're going to get a rush of labor, probably somewhat skilled labor because they held these jobs in European factories. But it's going to be cheap labor because they're all going to be competing for these jobs. So the manufacturers will hold sway over the labor of the working class. Now, I know that that may sound Marxist or something of that nature. I, I don't consider myself a Marxist at all. I think the Marx line of thinking is highly flawed. But this is what Hamilton's calling for. He wants very low taxes. Actually, in most cases, he wants manufacturers to be subsidized outright. He doesn't want them paying taxes at all. And then you import massive amounts of European labor so they can pay them dirt wages and maximize profit and therefore accelerate and maximize the growth of the manufacturing sector. And then for the next argument that we're going to look at, just keep in mind, so the South was the only exporting section of the country at this point. You had New England, which was basically, their their economy was built off of the carrying trade. So think about them. Uh, they, they would have the ships that took Southern produce over to European markets and bring back European goods to sell to Southern markets and other American markets too, but primarily the South. So you had a pipeline there, but New England was a commercial section. They, that's where they made the bulk of their money was on the carrying trade. Now, what Hamilton's going to be arguing for is that if we can set up domestic manufacturers, they're probably, at least initially, only going to be able to compete for the domestic market. But 
we're still going to have the southern section that's having to compete internationally. So what Hamilton's going to say is, well, you know what? We'll just do what's best for everybody. And we're going to create a domestic market, not only for our manufactured goods, but we're also going to create a strong domestic market for our agricultural products. That never really came to pass, though, because somebody had to pay the tariff. And that some that somebody or that section just so happened to end up being the South during the most of the 1800s until you get up to about the 1870s, 1880s. That's when you start getting the first stirrings of the populist movements there in the West. But somebody still had to pay the tariff. So they were still going to have to send, they being the states, were still going to have to send some sort of product abroad to generate the tariffs that Hamilton envisioned. So anyway, this next section, though, again, he's going to be talking about trying to create a stronger domestic product for the agricultural produce. So this section is titled, As to the creating, in some instances, a new and securing in all, a more certain and steady demand for the surplus produce of the soil. So again, creating that domestic market for agricultural products. And this section starts off, it says, This is among the most important of the circumstances which have been indicated. It is a principal mean by which the establishment of manufacturers contributes to the augmentation of the produce or revenue of a country and has an immediate and direct relation to the prosperity of agriculture. So there he's basically saying, look, if you don't have a flourishing manufacturing sector, then by extension, you're not going to have a flourishing agricultural section. And that's just not really true because the South was able to import, like if they needed plows or something like that, they were able to import that stuff from Europe for much cheaper than they would be able to get it from the American market. And Hamilton has an interesting part in this section. He says, if the system of perfect liberty to industry and commerce were the prevailing system of nations, the arguments which dissuade a country in the predicament of the United States from the zealous pursuits of manufacturers would doubtless have great force. So he's basically here, he's saying, look, if every country practiced free trade, then I could not rebuff this point, or I, I could not defeat this point. But that's not the behavior of nations is basically what he's going to say. So he says here, but the system which has been mentioned is far from characterizing the general policy of nations. The consequence of it is that the United States are to a certain extent in the situation of a country precluded from foreign commerce. They can indeed without difficulty obtain from abroad the manufactured supplies of which they are in want, but they experience numerous and very injurious impediments to the emission and vent of their own commodities. Nor is this the case in reference to a single foreign nation only. The regulations of several countries with which we have the most extensive intercourse throw serious obstructions in the way of the principal staples of the United States. In such a position of things, the United States cannot exchange with Europe on equal terms, and the want of reciprocity would render them the victim of a system which should induce them to confine their views to agriculture and refrain from manufactures. A constant and increase in necessity on their part for the commodities of Europe and only a partial and occasional demand for their own in return could not but expose them to a state of impoverishment compared with the opulence to which their political and natural advantages authorize them to aspire. So there he's basically saying, look, because the agricultural section of the country relies on European demand for their surplus of goods, then they're subject to European demand. Exactly that, the forces of supply and demand. So if Europe doesn't really have much of a demand for southern agricultural products, then the South is going to be impoverished because they can't sell their excess produce. But he's saying it doesn't have to be that way. Again, he's still making the case for a pretty much closed system where you have a domestic market both for manufactured and agricultural goods. Now, in theory, this actually sounds great. If you can make yourself self-sufficient, that's probably a better way to go because Hamilton does have a point here that you're always going to be at the mercy of your trading partner when you rely on them for critical items or critical, in this case, food from the European perspective. But again, how it would actually play out in practice is really where the problem is, at least in my opinion. That's really where the problem is with Hamilton's system because one section of the country is going to have to disproportionately bear the cost. And Hamilton does close out this section, or at least what we're going to read as the close of this section, with a very poignant statement. He says, Remarks of this kind are not men in the spirit of complaint. Tis for the nations whose regulations are alluded to to judge for themselves whether by aiming at too much they do not lose more than they gain. But tis for the United States to consider by what means they can render themselves least dependent on the combinations right or wrong of foreign policy. And again, he does have a point there. To the extent that you are able to render yourself independent of what other countries are doing, that is going to be a good thing. You can take more unilateral action. You're not going to get caught up in a globalist web of 
climate treaties, World Health Organization treaties, or anything of that nature. You're able to act unilaterally as an independent nation state. Now, to be fair, from my point of view and Jefferson's point of view, the United States were never supposed to be a consolidated nation state. The 13 states severally could be looked at as small micro-nation states, but they were never supposed to be conglomerated into one big consolidated unitary nation state the way that Hamilton envisioned it. But again, to this extent, he does have a point. I would much rather in our modern times, I would much rather have a true nationalist position as opposed to a globalist position, which is what we're doing. We're sacrificing U.S. sovereignty with things like the treaties I mentioned beforehand, the Paris Climate Accord, things of that nature. So Hamilton does have a point there. I'm not going to lie. He does. But again, it's how it would play out in practice that became the problem. But let's see what else he has to say here. So in this section, Hamilton's basically going to be trying to have his cake and eat it too, right? So he he's already talked about the danger of being subjected to foreign whims. But now he's going to talk about the virtues, I guess you could call it, of setting up manufacturers to be in a position where they can attract foreign capital. And his his ideology or his idea here is basically, what better way can we do that than by assuring them that the government's not going to let them fail? So he says in this part, the aid of foreign capital may safely and with considerable latitude be taken into calculation. Its instrumentality has been long experienced in our external commerce, and it has begun to be felt in various other modes. Not only our funds, but our agriculture and other internal improvements have been animated by it. It has already, in a few instances, extended even to our manufacturers. It is a well-known fact that there are parts of Europe which have more capital than profitable domestic objects of employment. Hence, among other proofs, the large loans continually furnish to foreign states. And it is equally certain that the capital of other parts may find more profitable employment in the United States than at home. And notwithstanding, there are weighty inducements to prefer the employment of capital at home, even at less profit, to an investment of it abroad, though with greater gain, yet these inducements are overruled either by a deficiency of employment or by a very material difference in profit. Both these causes operate to produce a transfer of foreign capital to the United States. And this is where he says, look, we need to give them some assurances. So he says here, to certain that various objects in this country hold out advantages which are with difficulty to be equaled elsewhere, and under the increasingly favorable impressions which are entertained of our government, the attractions will become more and more strong. These impressions will prove a rich mine of prosperity to the country if they are confirmed and strengthened by the progress of our affairs. And to secure this advantage, little more is now necessary than to foster industry and cultivate order and tranquility at home and abroad." So kudos to Hamilton for ostensibly being anti-war here. Now, we would see as we get into the Adams administration, that wasn't actually the case. But kudos to him for at least using anti-war rhetoric. He says, look, we, we don't need to be getting involved in any sort of foreign wars. We need to focus on uh, cultivating order and tranquility at home and abroad. But behind that lurks the dirty little secret of we need to kind of give a wink and a nod to these foreign investors or these would-be foreign investors by fostering our industry and making it known that they're not going to be allowed to fail. So the investors will be able to recoup their losses or not suffer any losses because we're just not going to let industry fail. We're going to set them up. We're going to prop them up. And the effect would be noticeable, as, as Hamilton says here in the next paragraph. He says, When the manufacturing capitalist of Europe shall advert to the many important advantages which have been intimated in the course of this report, he cannot but perceive very powerful inducements to a transfer of himself and his capital to the United States. Among the reflections which a most interesting peculiarity of situation is calculated to suggest, it cannot escape his observation as a circumstance of moment in the calculation that the progressive population and improvement of the United States ensure a continually increasing domestic demand for the fabrics which he shall produce not to be affected by any external casualties or vicissitudes. And so again, Hamilton is saying we need to let them know we are going to give them a reason to move here. And then he goes on, He so he's made the case for attracting foreign capital, but then he goes on to really let the powers that be know that there's going to be a domestic source for all this funding as well. So he says, but while there are circumstances sufficiently strong to authorize a considerable degree of reliance on the aid of foreign capital towards the attainment of the object in view, it is satisfactory to have good grounds of assurance that there are domestic resources of themselves adequate to it. 
It happens that there is a species of capital actually existing within the United States which relieves from all inquietude on the score of want of capital. This is the funded debt. The effect of a funded debt as a species of capital has been noticed upon a former occasion, but a more particular elucidation of the point seems to be required by the stress which is here laid upon it. This shall accordingly be attempted. Public funds answer the purpose of capital from the estimation in which they are usually held by moneyed men, and consequently from the ease and dispatch with which they can be turned into money. This capacity of prompt convertibility into money causes a transfer of stock to be in a greater number of cases equivalent to a payment in coin. And where it does not happen to suit the party who is to receive to accept a transfer of stock, the party who is to pay is never at a loss to find elsewhere a purchaser of his stock, who will furnish him in lieu of it with the coin of which he stands in need. Hence, in a sound and settled state of the public funds, a man possessed of a sum in them can embrace any scheme of business which offers with as much confidence as if he were possessed of an equal sum in coin. And so again, this is Hamilton calling back to his first report on public credit. He's saying, look, this is what I meant when I said that the national debt is a national blessing. This is what I meant. We can sell, we can have people floating their bonds out as a substitution for currency, even though the Constitution does not authorize to have a paper currency. We can have investors in the public debt circulate their stock in the government or their bonds in the government and basically substitute that for money. And this is going to be a huge boon to us because we can use the proceeds we get from them to give bounties. That's what he's going to say later on in the report here, is that when you have this shuffling back and forth of government bonds and you inflate artificially the money supply and you have people circulating that instead of real coin, well, look, the government's going to get the coin and the government will actually make the investments where it sees best fit. This is state-directed capitalism. That is all it is, plain and simple. And so now the question must be, why would Jeffersonians object to this, or why would the agricultural section object to this as strongly as they did? Well, let's think about the time period, right? You had very poor roads, and all the banking houses at this time were really kind of concentrated in New York and Philadelphia. So Jefferson and his ilk, their fear was you're going to have these people, these speculators who live in these big cities close to the house of knowledge, and they're going to be the ones who benefit while you're taxing everybody to fund your schemes. It's all, all the gains are going to be concentrated in the hands of a very small elite few. And especially when Hamilton was acting as secretary of treasury, they would also be benefiting from inside knowledge. So that is something else to keep in mind. The Jeffersonians saw that when you concentrate capital like this and you concentrate it in the hands of the few versus the hands of the many, you are going to end up with a subjected population or a subjugated population for the most part, aside from the paper aristocracy, as John Taylor of Caroline called them. But let's go ahead and see what else Hamilton has to say in this report. All right, so in this section, Hamilton's basically going to try to counter some of the arguments that people made to say, hey, look, we have all these other types of manufacturers who organically sprang up and have been very successful. So he says, to all the arguments which are brought to events the impracticability of success in manufacturing establishments in the United States, it might have been a sufficient answer to have referred to the experience of what has been already done. It is certain that several important branches have grown up and flourished with a rapidity which surprises affording an encouraging assurance of success in future attempts. Of these, it may not be improper to enumerate the most considerable. And so here he's going to lay out some of the types of industry that had sprung up or some of the types of manufacturers that had sprung up without governmental aid. So the first one he talks about is the skins industry. So this would be like the leather makers, the hide tanner, so on and so forth. Iron manufacturers, so bar and sheet iron, uh, steel nail rods, nails, implements of husbandry, stoves, pots, and pans. Uh, household utensils, so on and so forth. So that industry had already started to have some success without governmental interference. And then the third type is going to be of wood. Uh, fourth would be flax and hemp. Fifth, bricks and coarse tiles and potter's wares. Sixth, ardent spirits and malt liquors. And seventh, writing and printing paper. So you would have uh, paper manufacturers, essentially. And then eighth would be hats and fur uh, manufacturers, so people who made hats, so hatters and wool manufacturers or wool clothes, clothing makers, rather. Uh, ninth would be refined sugars. Tenth would be oils of animals and seeds. Eleventh, copper and brass. Twelfth, tin wares. Thirteenth, carriage manufacturers. Fourteenth, snuff, chewing, and smoking tobacco, which that should come as no surprise considering the South's proclivity to manufacture tobacco at that point. 
15th starch and hair powder, 16th lamp black and other painters colors, and then 17th gunpowder. So he lists 17 different types of industries there who had actually started to show a, a strong sign of flourishing without any sort of governmental aid. Now, if he had just left it there and said, okay, this is proof that a free market system works, hey, we're all good, but that's not where he's going to leave it. What he's going to do from here is actually say, despite the success, some of these pet industries will actually need more aid or will need some aid from the government so they don't get driven out of competition by their European counterparts. So he's he's basically going to set up the case to say we have 17 different industries that are starting to show signs of flourishment, but we're going to pick some pet industries and make sure that those can never go out of business is, is essentially what he's going to call for with his system. So the next part that we're going to talk about, Hamilton actually talks about how certain types of these manufactories, as he called them, uh, specifically clothing is, is what he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about how these are flourishing, but they're flourishing as being a product of home manufacturing, right? So people are making them in their houses, and not only are they making enough to subsist, but they're also making enough to bring to market as individuals, not, not as corporate entities, but as individuals. And Hamilton in this report actually seems to indicate he thinks that that is a good thing, that people are being productive enough that they, that they have that much to sell. But he does go on to talk about how there would be some advantages if we were to help these industries along, which inevitably is going to lead to consolidation because you're only going to have certain contractors who get the contracts to make these things. And you're only going to have certain industries or, or certain owners of the industry, rather, who get the subsidies. So he, after he talks about the home manufacturers, he goes on to say, there remains to be noticed an objection to the encouragement of manufacturers of a nature different from those which question the probability of success. This is derived from its supposed tendency to give a monopoly of advantages to particular classes at the expense of the rest of the community, who, it is affirmed, would be able to procure the requisite supplies of manufactured articles on better terms from foreigners than from our own citizens, and who, it is alleged, are reduced to a necessity of paying an enhanced price for whatever they want by every measure which obstructs the free competition of foreign commodities. It is not an unreasonable supposition that measures which serve to abridge the free competition of foreign articles have a tendency to occasion an enhancement of prices, and it is not to be denied that such is the effect in a number of cases, but the fact does not uniformly correspond with the theory. A reduction of prices has in several instances immediately succeeded the establishment of a domestic manufacturer. Whether it be that foreign manufacturers endeavor to supplant by underselling our own or whatever else may be the cause, the effect has been such as is stated and the reverse of what might have been expected. And so right there, that would become over time the main sticking point of the Southern opposition to the tariff system is that it gave so much protection to Northern manufacturers that the South was having to pay through the nose. So they weren't necessarily having to pay all the import taxes, although the South did bear a greater share of that responsibility. But what happens if you have a European manufacturer who can sell a good, let's say for $100, just for easy math's sake, if a European manufacturer can sell a good for $100, but its American counterpart cannot manufacture that good and sell it at a profit for any less than, let's say, $200. So what would happen is, in some cases, the Congress would literally put a 100% tariff on that article. So you would have a European good that here there too cost $100. Well, now it's going to be $200, if not a little bit more. And the American item, by comparison, is the same price, although it may not be the same quality. So why not buy from the domestic manufacturer? Now, in some cases, Congress would actually get even more punitive, and they would increase the tariff so much that the European good would actually cost significantly more than the American good. That's not to say that the Southerners were saving money on this, because, again, without the tariff, they, they still could have gotten the European good for a cheaper price overall. But that would, starting probably around 1820, that would really become a sticking point for the South to say, look, we're bearing the vast majority of the financial burden to maintain this union. We're paying all this stuff. You have your internal improvements, and you're taking our tax money and doing stuff in the North, and we're not getting anything out of it. So, And what enabled that was a burgeoning coalescence of the North and the West, right? So when we get to John C. Calhoun, when he had his states' rights awakening, that was one thing he sought to do for the remainder of his days was really solidify a Southwest coalition as opposed to what was going on with the North and Western coalition. 
So a lot of interesting stuff going on here, but Hamilton right here is is acknowledging, yes, and initially we we will acknowledge it's going to be a lot more expensive for you to, if you rely on these manufactured goods or if you rely on purchasing this from somebody else and you're not self-sufficient. We acknowledge it's going to be more expensive, but if you just give it time, if you just give it time, we assure you history bears that it will get cheaper in the long run. And Hamilton could not have been more incorrect there, at least based on how things would ultimately play out on the American scene. What happened was actually the manufacturers got so dependent on governmental aid and tariffs that they just never lowered the prices. And anytime a tariff reduction was even threatened, the manufacturers would basically threaten revolt. I mean, not not to the extent that we would see with the South, but they would really throw a hissy fit and demand to have the protection reinstated. So the South would have these intermittent periods where you would have a little bit lower tariffs but never extremely low but then that would be followed by a intermittent period of extremely extremely high tariffs as, as a matter of fact when you start getting to rolled iron and everything else you would have some tariffs i think that got up to about 150 percent so it was just absolutely ludicrous but again we're, we're starting to see the seeds of all this all the way back in 1791 all the way back in 1791 70 years before the war. So just keep that in mind as we're moving through this, because again, this ultimately is a study of the war for Southern independence in the long view. We already have them, the two sections quibbling over this all the way back in 1791. And then the next point of divergence from the Jeffersonians that we're going to talk about is what Hamilton has to say about using a Navy or having a Navy to maintain trade routes and basically protect commerce. So he says in this report, the want of a Navy to protect our external commerce as long as it shall continue, must render it a peculiarly precarious reliance for the supply of essential articles and must serve to strengthen prodigiously the arguments in favor of manufacturers. So that's interesting because under the Adams administration, you would have a naval buildup. Under the Jefferson administration, you would have basically a maintenance of the Navy. I don't think it necessarily expanded. But then you contrast that to what the Jeffersonians were saying. They did not want, when you start talking about John Randolph of Roanoke, John Taylor of Caroline, Nathaniel Macon, they did not want a standing army and they did not want a proactive navy. They did not want that because they said these will be the tools of our oppression. Now, something else, and this is not really related to the war for Southern independence, but what Hamilton just said here, you extrapolate that up to the early 1900s under Teddy Roosevelt with the Great White Fleet. That is exactly how the U.S. was using its navy, basically at the behest of corporations and mass producers. It would send its Navy into these areas that it wanted to trade with and say, you know, you can trade with us or you can be blockaded and you, we'll, we'll starve you out, essentially. So think about that when we start talking about the forced opening of Japan, uh, when you start having the Boxer Rebellion. There, there are several different instances where you have the Navy being used as a tool to force open trade routes, even though the mother countries that they're invading didn't are not necessarily invading, but that they're trying to strangulate. They didn't really want it, but but we told them, well, you can trade with us and make a lot of money, or we can starve you out. So I just thought that was kind of interesting since Hamilton's calling for that sort of a system or that sort of a setup and use of the Navy all the way back in 1791, and he would kind of get his wish in the early 1900s, late 1800s. But then he goes on to acknowledge that there are some people who say that the South and the North have different interests or competing interests. So he says, it is not uncommon to meet with an opinion that though the promoting of manufacturers may be the interest of a part of the Union, it is contrary to that of another part. The northern and southern regions are sometimes represented as having adverse interest in this respect. Those are called manufacturing, these agricultural states, and a species of opposition is imagined to subsist between the manufacturing and agricultural interest. And he basically goes on to say that this is totally made up, that there can be nothing but harmony here because the interest of one is the interest of all. But again, as we would see things as they played out once the system was implemented, that really was not true because, yes, one, one part of the country or one section of the union was paying a lot more per capita than the other part to maintain the system. But now that we have Hamilton's understanding and justification of his system out of the way, let's actually turn and, and see now what he says is going to be the way to implement this. So he says, A full view, having now been taken of the inducements to the promotion of manufacturers in the United States, accompanied with an examination of the principal objections which are commonly urged in opposition, it is proper in the next place to consider the means by which it may be effected. So how is he going to bring it into existence? 
as introductory to a specification of the objects which in the present state of things appear the most fit to be encouraged, and of the particular measures which it may be advisable to adopt in respect to each. In order to a better judgment of the means proper to be resorted to by the United States, it will be of use to advert to those which have been employed with success in other countries. The principle of these are, one, protecting duties, or duties on those foreign articles which are the rivals of the domestic ones intended to be encouraged. Two, prohibitions of rival articles of, or duties equivalent to prohibition. So basically he's saying, look, we have these certain countries we just can't compete with, so to that end... We're just going to prohibit their trade altogether, or we're going to make the duty so high it will basically serve as a prohibition. Three, prohibitions of the exportation of the materials and manufacturers. So he's basically saying there, we're going to outlaw exporting certain types of raw materials. If we think that that would be harmful to the United States, we're not even going to let you export it. So not that the South was able to do this, but just to give you an example, let's say if the South had been able to grow coffee beans, right? But let's say that Britain had a much more effective process when it came to manufacturing the actual finished product of coffee. So if you wanted cold coffee or something like that, let's just say for whatever reason, Britain had the ability to do it very efficiently, whereas the U.S. did not. Well, what would happen is essentially here, Hamilton's saying, well, we're just going to outlaw you from selling your coffee beans abroad. You can sell them here domestically, but you, we're not going to let you export them out of the country. And that that's terrifying to me to say that you don't have a right to grow crops on your own land and sell them to whomever you see fit. That, that is actually terrifying to me. And then fourth, and this was Hamilton's most preferred method, although at this time it didn't really come into fruition exactly the way he wanted to, but fourth, pecuniary bounties. Now, what he's talking about here is actually outright subsidies. So he wanted the government to just outright hand cash over and, you know, air quotes, make investment in these certain pet industries and that thankfully did not really come to pass in his day. Now, the tariff was definitely implemented even in his time. Uh, you go back to the tariff of 1792, you can see what all was, was listed in that and what the rates were, so on and so forth. But the bounty system, thank God, did not take place in his day. Although over time, we would have certain industries that started to benefit from subsidies. Uh, one of the main ones even now is, is the oil industry. You have a lot of subsidies being doled out there. And this is the one thing that Hamilton would actually really address the constitutionality. He, he's going to acknowledge there's a question about the constitutionality of using a bounty system. So he says, a question has been made concerning the constitutional right of the government of the United States to apply this species of encouragement, but there is certainly no good foundation for such a question. The national legislature has expressed authority to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare with no other qualifications than that all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States, that no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to numbers ascertained by a census or enumeration taken on the principles prescribed in the Constitution, and that no tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state. So the government would not have the ability to tax exports, although Hamilton is saying that, well, we can just prohibit it. If we can't tax it, we can just prevent you from sending it out. These three qualifications accepted, the power to raise money is plenary and indefinite, and the objects to which it may be appropriated are no less comprehensive than the payment of the public debts and the providing for the common defense and general welfare. The terms general welfare were doubtless intended to signify more than was expressed or imported in those which preceded. Otherwise, numerous exigencies incident to the affairs of a nation would have been left without a provision. The phrase is as comprehensive as any that could have been used because it was not fit that the constitutional authority of the Union to appropriate its revenues should have been restricted within narrower limits than the general welfare and because this necessarily embraces a vast variety of particulars which are susceptible neither of specification nor of definition. Now, Madison would say, no, we have this layout of things that Congress can do here in Article 1, Section 8. These are all the powers delegated to Congress. You cannot go beyond that, even if you think it's expedient, it is not constitutional. That was Madison's position, that was Jefferson's position, and general welfare was also supposed to mean the general welfare of the Union. So the, the Union, or the government, whatever would make things easier between the states, not general welfare as in we can legislate directly for citizens and these pet industries by giving them subsidies and picking winners and losers. That was not what was in, intended at all by the general welfare clause. But then the fifth pillar of Hamilton's system here would be premiums. So those are sort of akin to bounties, although with a, a slightly different flavor. 
And then six would be the exemption of the materials and manufacturers from duty. So he's basically saying, look, if we need to import raw materials, then as long as it's going to a manufacturing company, we're going to give them a tax break on that. They don't have to pay these import duties. Now, again, think about what this is saying to the people of the South, especially the Southerners who were foresighted enough to understand that they were already going to be sharing a disproportionate amount of this financial burden. So think about what that's saying to them. You're going to force us because we're exporters. You're going to force us to pay for anything we need to import. We're already competing with the duties that they're charging on our imports in Europe. But now you're going to force us to compete and you're going to force us to pay more for it. And then you're going to exempt these people or these companies from having to pay the taxes, their fair share of the taxes. So again, think about what that's saying, that Hamilton is openly calling for corporate welfare here. He is openly calling for corporate welfare. He's saying, we're going to give them a tax break on this because again, those duties could be extremely high. Some of them went up to roughly 150% once the tariff system really got into full swing. And then the seventh plank would be drawbacks of the duties which are imposed on the materials and manufacturers. So basically the same thing as number six. He's saying whatever existing duties we have, we need to go ahead and start drawing those back. But the end goal is we're just going to exempt them altogether. And then the eighth plank would be the encouragement of new inventions and discoveries at home and of the introduction into the United States of such as may have been made in other countries, particularly those that relate to machinery. So he's talking about the patent system there. And then the ninth plank would be judicious regulations for the inspection of manufactured commodities. Tenth would be the facilitating a pecuniary remittance from place to place. So basically he's going to talk there about the, again, convenience of a national bank, not the constitutionality. And then the 11th plank is the facilitating of the transportation of commodities. So he's going to openly say, yes, he is a big time supporter of federally funded internal improvements. So this would be like the modern interstate system. Canals back then would have been a big thing. But I thought this one passage from the 11th plank was very interesting. He says, These examples, it is to be hoped, will stimulate the exertions of the government and the citizens of every state. There can certainly be no object more worthy of the cares of the local administrations, and it were to be wished that there was no doubt of the power of the national government to lend its direct aid on a comprehensive plan. This is one of those improvements which could be prosecuted with more efficacy by the whole than by any part or parts of the union. There are cases in which the general interest will be in danger to be sacrificed to the collision of some supposed local interest. Jealousies in matters of this kind are as apt to exist as they are apt to be erroneous. So Hamilton is basically talking about how important it is to have good roads so you can transport your market goods more efficiently, basically faster and more efficiently. And he's saying, look, we want the general government to be in control of this. We want them doling out money to get these things done. And it's interesting because the, uh, the Jeffersonians would say, no, you don't have the power based on what the Constitution grants you to do this. If states want to improve their roads or construct canals, that's fine. Their citizens can raise the money to do that by voting in higher taxes, or you can have private interest doing it. But you don't have the power to do this. And Hamilton is saying it's a sad fact of affairs or a sad state of affairs because we're getting hung up on this and we can't agree, do we have the power, do we not? Now, in Hamilton's interpretation, obviously, he's openly saying, yes, we do. But the Jeffersonian said, no, you don't. We did not grant you the authority to do that. You cannot tax Virginia to pay for canals in Vermont. And when it comes to funding his internal improvements, Hamilton's going to talk about the different types of taxes that could be used, although he has some that he definitely abhors as opposed to a tariff. So one of those being the income tax, actually. He says, there are certain species of taxes which are apt to be oppressive to different parts of the community and among other ill effects have a very unfriendly aspect towards manufacturers. All poll or capitation taxes are of this nature. They either proceed according to a fixed rate which operates unequally and injuriously to the industrious poor, or they vest a discretion in certain officers to make estimates and assessments which are necessarily vague conjectural and liable to abuse they ought therefore to be abstained from in all but cases of distress and emergencies so it's interesting because capitation taxes poll taxes those are basically uniform taxes that you would just put in place per capita right so everybody would pay the same rate you can think of it as as sort of the modern version of a flat tax now it's interesting because hamilton's saying we don't want that we don't want that at all because that's going to hurt manufacturers we'd rather have a tariff 
where only certain people are going to pay this at the benefit of others. He doesn't come out right and say that, but that's the inference here is that, no, 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 we don't want something where everybody has to pay a little bit or a certain amount or a set amount. We want something that's going to end up in practice operating unequally, and we want one section to pay for this at the benefit of the other. That's how the South saw it. That's how it actually came to pass once it got in full swing. But we can even take that one step further because at this time, a lot of the money, a lot of the currency was actually concentrated in the Northeast and in the middle states. In the South, you had people who were land rich, but cash poor a lot of times, except for the big planters who took on a lot of debt. Yeah, they may have a lot of money on them. But by and large, your average Southern yeoman farmer was very poor, didn't really have a lot of money. He had his own land, but that was about it. Whereas in the North, you had the paper shufflers and the stock jobbers, and those were the, the hands that held a lot of monetary wealth. So if we switch to an income tax or a capitation tax or a poll tax that was uniform, then in that case, the North is going to have to bear a huge portion of the burden as opposed to how it actually ended up with the South doing it. So Hamilton's being a sneaky snake here. He's saying, no, we don't want this thing that could be uniform because that's going to hurt manufacturers, whether they be north or south. We want something that's only going to apply to things that are being brought in from abroad. Basically, external taxes is, is what he's talking about here. And then from here, Hamilton's going to go ahead and lay out his pet industries or his preferred industries to see really get protection. These industries are going to be iron, Copper, lead, fossil coal, wood, grain, flax and hemp, and that would actually be more important later on when you start getting Kentucky even being somewhat in favor of a protective system. But flax and hemp, cotton, wool, silk, glass, gunpowder, paper, printed books, refined sugars, and chocolates. And then he talks about how as part of doing this, one thing that you could do is subsidize specialists coming in from abroad or subsidize specialized immigrants coming in from abroad. So he says, let a certain annual sum be set apart from the tariff revenue and be placed under the management of commissioners, not less than three to consist of certain officers of the government and their successors in office. Let these commissioners be empowered to apply the fund confided to them to defray the expenses of the immigration of artists and manufacturers in particular branches of extraordinary importance to induce the prosecution and introduction of useful discoveries, inventions, and improvements by proportionate rewards judiciously held out and applied to encourage by premiums both honorable and lucrative the exertions of individuals and of classes in relation to the several objects they are charged with promoting and to afford such other aids to those objects as may be generally designated by law. There is reason to believe that the progress of particular manufacturers has been much retarded by the want of skillful workmen, and it often happens that the capitals employed are not equal to the purposes of bringing from abroad workmen of a superior kind. Here in cases worthy of it, the auxiliary agency of government would in all probability be useful. There are also valuable workmen in every branch who are prevented from immigrating solely by the want of means. Occasional aids to such persons properly administered might be a source of valuable acquisitions to the country. So think about what Hamilton's saying there. Again, earlier in the report, he's saying, look, we can just import European immigrants to take over these factory jobs that you Southerners and you agrarians don't want. If y'all want to cling to your farm, by all means, cling to your farm. We don't need you. We'll import from abroad. And here, late in the report, actually, this is the last page of the report, Hamilton is openly saying, we need a governmental agency who will subsidize the moving costs for certain types of laborers and certain types of factory owners. He is openly calling for that. He wants to import and subsidize, again, still in taxes from one section of the country to subsidize the progress, quote unquote, of the other section of the country. So that is highly, highly problematic there because that is not constitutional. The, the Congress has no authority whatsoever, even now, to provide direct benefits like this to the citizens, none whatsoever. So that's going to go ahead and conclude our study of Hamilton's system. So we have in the first part of it a funded national debt that is permanent. The second part, we have an unconstitutional national bank. And then in the third part, we have unconstitutional protectionist tariffs and duties. So thank you all again for your time. From here, we're going to look at one more Jeffersonian response to the Hamiltonian system. And then we will be proceeding into our next portion of the War for Southern Independence which is most likely going to be studying the War of 1812 and some of the bad things that came out of that. But thanks again for your time and for tuning in. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian Revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your go-backs today. 
And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.